Morning, the maximum temperature around 19 degrees during the day. Moderate northerly winds, fresh offshore. Uh, the outlook fine and dry with rather cool mornings uh, for the rest of the week and weekends. Uh, currently 13 Celsius, 67% relative humidity. Uh, um, Andrew Work will be uh, with you on Tuesday morning for Money Talk. I will see you tomorrow night at 10 past six for the greatest hits of music. And uh, Back Chat and the best of Back Chat is up in a moment. Now it's 8.30 and with the news headlines, here's Andrew. Thank you, James. Pelé, arguably the world's greatest ever footballer, has died in Brazil at the age of 82. His death was announced by one of his daughters who'd been with him in hospital in Sao Paulo. Sports broadcaster and former England footballer Gary Lineker says Pelé's legacy is guaranteed. Pelé is, of course, regarded as a legend, but he actually is a legend, certainly in football terms. He won three World Cups and was a major figure in doing those, one of the greatest players of all time. Won his first World Cup in 1958 when he was just 17 years old and scored a hat-trick in the semi-final and then two in the final, including one where he flicks it over his head, over a defender and volleys it into the back of the net. He followed that up with success in 62 and then again in 70, the only player to win three World Cups. So I think it's very easy to explain why he's a legend. Tributes to Pele have been pouring in from around the world. Brazil's president-elect Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva said there had never been a player like him. The top Brazilian star of today, Neymar, said before Pele, 10 was just a number and football only a sport. And he had changed it all. The French star Kylian Mbappe said his legacy would never be forgotten. The former German World Cup winner Franz Beckenbauer said football had lost the greatest player in history. Pele's official biographer is Harry Harris. He played in an era where referees gave him no protection whatsoever. You've only got to look at the footage when he played at Goodison Park against Italy in the 66 World Cup when England won the World Cup. He was hacked to absolute oblivion until they actually had to carry him off the pitch. He also played on pitches that were abysmal and the balls were heavy, not like they are today. He scored a 1,000 goals then. He could have scored 2,000 in this era. Pele's funeral will be held on Monday at the Santos Football Club ground. Thousands of people have begun arriving in the area to pay their respects to their hero. The most hardline government in Israel's history has been sworn in. The Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu insists he will promote tolerance and peace, but the coalition has stirred unease, as the BBC's Yolanda Nell reports from Jerusalem. A cloud of hundreds gathered outside the parliament, holding up Israeli flags, rainbow flags and signs reading shame and danger. Some protesters voiced fears about the new coalition setting West Bank settlement expansion as a top priority, warning this could increase tensions with the Palestinians. With Benjamin Netanyahu still on trial for corruption, which he denies, others condemned plans to overhaul the legal system. There's also concern about plans to change anti-discrimination laws so that businesses could refuse to serve people because of their religious beliefs. The Vatican says the former Pope Benedict XVI remains seriously ill but in a stable condition. The BBC's Bethany Bell in Rome has more details. The Vatican statement said that Benedict was lucid and alert and had rested well during the night. It said Pope Francis renewed his invitation for people to pray for Benedict in these difficult hours. A conservative upholder of traditional Catholic doctrines, Benedict became Pope in 2005. He presided over the church as it confronted the scandal of sexual abuse by priests around the world. He retired in 2013, becoming the first Pope to step down in nearly 600 years. 
The European Union's Disease Prevention Agency has said the screening of travelers from China for COVID would be unjustified. It follows an appeal from Italy for the rest of the EU to follow its lead and ensure Chinese arrivals are tested and quarantined if necessary. Several countries, including the U.S., India, and Japan, have imposed new restrictions on Chinese arrivals. EU ministers are still considering how to respond. But the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control said the COVID surge was not expected to have much impact in the block. The British fashion designer Vivian Westwood has died at the age of 81. As the person who dressed the Sex Pistols, she was synonymous with 1970s punk rock, a rebelliousness that remained the hallmark of an unapologetically political designer who became one of Britain's fashion's biggest names. Climate change, pollution, and her support for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange were all fodder for Vivian Westwood protest T-shirts or banners carried by her models on the runway. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to the last installment of the Best of Back Chat with me, Janice Wong. On today's program, we're going to focus on art and culture. Earlier this year, some iconic neon signs in Yaomate and Yunlong were removed by the government for safety reasons, including the one at Kunnamwa Bridal Shop. But enthusiasts have rescued many of them in an attempt to preserve what they see as important Hong Kong heritage. Corden Chan, the spokesperson for Tetra Neon Exchange, a self-funded neon conservation group, explained the significance of these colourful signs to Andrew Work. On a personal level, um, neon signs actually uh, 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 give us like give me like special meaning because I grew up in the 90s and 80s in Hong Kong. Like uh, uh, the streets were full of neon, and to me it was like um, it was like, it was like a, a sign of home, you know. Uh, and then and then eventually I, I moved away from Hong Kong, and then I realized like whenever I came back to visit, um, I just realized like the, the the rapid disappearance or the drastic disappearance of um, neon signs, and that gave me like some sort of like a wake up call. And then I partnered, I I got um, uh, invited to join uh, to run Petronion Exchange, and then that that was how we started. And then we would like to actually like we have been. I uh, dedicated ourselves to actually save the neon signs in the city that could not actually be kept uh, at the original location so that we could actually use them as like, a tangible means for us to tell stories, different kinds of stories. For example, like why Hong Kong neon uh, signs is a kind of art form or how it actually like brings Hong Kong uh, the beautiful uh, uh, title, The Pearl of the Orient. Uh, and then also like uh, the the industries and then the stores or even the area developments that um, embody or represented by neon signs as well. I think I've got somebody who might be aligned with you, but uh, maybe is questioning the neon signs as well. An email from James. He says, mm -hmm. neon signs have for a long time been iconic in Hong Kong. I remember mm -hmm. looking up at Nathan Road when I first arrived 27 years ago, and mm -hmm. they look great in Wong Kai Wai films. However, are they still necessary? Do people go to restaurants or massage parlors due to a neon sign? How much do they cost? Is it a waste of energy? I don't want Hong Kong to become more bland. So if there's no great cost to maintaining neon signs, let them shine bright, says James. Um, it sounds like he loves them, but he's also asking some of the questions. I mean, uh, how, how costly are neon signs? Are they, are they expensive from a, uh, from a monetary point of view or from an environmental impact view? 
to actually understand like how neon signs are actually made. Uh, uh, as far as we know, because we actually spend so much time uh, with neon masters or neon people in the, from the industry, you know. Uh, and then we actually, the more that we actually understand neon signs, the more we realize actually uh, almost every part still is uh, made by hand. So it is like artisanal, you know. And I, I, that's one part of like our our jobs is to help people understand the value or the significance of neon signs and help them understand like uh, if we would like them to rediscover Hong Kong neon so that they would actually be able to appreciate them and also to cherish them. Of course, like neon signs, of course, is, uh, like everything else, they have like pros and cons, right? And and because it's an art form, because it's like artisanal and craftsmanship, of course, like the price tag would not be cheap, you know, because of the living Hong Kong, like standards in Hong Kong. We have to think about that. We have to take that into consideration as well. Uh, and and whether it saves energy, I think if 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 we believe something is worth saying, of course we will find ways to actually uh, 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 make it viable to stay. You know, you understand. Uh, and, and I think like we we actually have uh, interactions with like um, people in the industry. They actually say like there are different ways you could actually uh, save energy. Of course, uh, but of course because it is a. a a kind of craft, unlike, for example, like other forms of um, advertisements, like LED or LED screens, uh, probably uh, neon signs could not actually do a lot of effects that LED or LED screens could do. But it doesn't mean like it doesn't deserve like a, a place to stay. That's my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Ms. Chan, you said uh, your group has been collecting a lot of uh, old neon signs. Uh, how many do you have? Uh, so far, we have got like around forty something, uh, big and small, since we were uh, since we started our conservation work. And so now, what are you going to do with them? I actually, we we are going to have well, not going to have, but um, uh, preparation for our first ever outdoor exhibition is um, uh, is happening right now. Uh, it's in Central as part of the Summerfest. Uh, we actually restored a, a, a few neon signs uh, that we preserved over the past two years, uh, mostly uh, restaurant-related this time. Uh, we we actually worked very hard. It, I think it is kind of unpre unprecedented uh, for people to actually restore uh, neon signs this way or on this scale as well. Uh, we worked very hard with um, local neon masters to help us explore different ways or experiment, you know, uh, how to actually not only to restore the cladding, the outside of the signs, or not to just repair the tubes, but we actually have to figure out how to actually strengthen the structure so that they could be safe to be on display but we are also like preparing the exhibition rooms as well you you slipped in a mention of neon masters is, is yeah. you know is this a little bit like bamboo scaffolding in hong kong is this a law is this a dying craft where you you've got a bunch of you know octogenarians nonagenarians who know how to do this or, or are there another generation of neon masters rising up to take their place I do feel like they do have like a lot in common. I mean, between neon masters and also like bamboo theater builders, uh, it takes years of practice, like uh, continued practice, uh, to actually achieve like what they could actually do. I must say, I would not actually want to describe it as dying, but it's going through like uh, transformation, and and that's another part of our job. Why like we hope we could actually help uh, create a, a healthier 
uh, most prosperous like, environment for um, neon industry to thrive, and then in order to actually attract a new blood to actually join the industry. But uh, yes, I think there is a gap that we need to definitely like to catch on before the last um, uh, neon masters actually retire. Are there are there any other centers of, of neon mastery in the rest of the world? Because I can't think of any. Like I mean, uh, when I think about my travels, I don't think anywhere has as quite a vibrant neon light scene as Hong Kong. Are, are there? Is there? Does Hong Kong have any competition in, in the neon mastery? As far as I know, there is no competition <laughs> held or whatsoever. Um, they are very um, solitary uh, people. They, they usually just work in the studio, and then, uh, as far as I know, uh, they, they just like to focus on their craft and getting signs done. They, they, they probably, as a whole, they rarely would actually talk to each other. Really, it sounds mm. sounds very romantic in a sense. Is is the <laughs> is the regulatory environment in Hong Kong uh, favorable for for more companies to put up neon signs? Like we hear about signs being forced to be taken down, either because yeah. they were put up illegally. It's, I don't think it's the neon; it's the issue. Is it? Is it? Isn't it usually they're too big or they're poking out into the street where they didn't have permission? As far as I know, regulations, some sort of regulations, were always in place, but whether they were executed to the uh, to, to the standard, probably uh, it was in question. Some of the people in the industry actually shared with me. Uh, but I think like since 2010, the implementation of um, the minor works control system and also the signboard control system uh, uh, executed by um, the buildings department, I think we saw quite a bit of large-scale demolitions uh, because most of the, the signs uh, have become part of the, the buildings now. Right. Uh, and then any unauthorized structures uh, had to be removed uh, gradually. Mm. Right. Ms. Ms. Chan, just one uh, final question. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned about your central exhibition and you mentioned mm -hmm. your exhibition room. Um, will, will the exhibition room be like a permanent uh, exhibition for these signs? Or, I mean, where will they go after these exhibitions are over? Uh, this is like a, a pop-up exhibition for us. Uh, uh, of course, like we would, we, we we invested so much like into this. We pour our heart out into this as well. Uh, it's not just about us. It's about like neon uh, uh, masters and also like really to actually send a message across. Like people, please like rediscover this before it goes. And of course, we want to actually uh, have an extension of life for uh, our pop-up exhibition. So uh, we are in search of like uh, the perfect location. In, somewhere in Hong Kong so that we could actually like place it somewhere and then people that uh, more people could be able to appreciate Neon. That's Cardin Chan, spokesperson for Tetra Neon Exchange. Now, we may have lost some neon signs this year, but we did gain a new world-class cultural landmark in the West Kowloon Cultural District. And I'm talking about the Palace Museum, of course, that officially opened in July, with hundreds of precious relics and national treasures on loan from Beijing. The museum director of the Hong Kong Palace Museum, Dr. Louis Ng, told me and Samantha Butler what makes the art pieces so special. Okay, uh as you mentioned that, you know, we will feature over 900 um, priceless treasures from the Palace Museum. Uh, those known are amongst the finest uh, works from, you know, this Palace Museum collection and will be presented at the nine opening exhibitions. So um, the treasures on loan to us are rich and diverse. 
covering all major categories in the Palace Museum collections, ranging from printing, calligraphy to bronze, ceramics, jade, metalwork, lacquer, silk, custom, and textile, and also uh, rebel architecture. You know, you should mention you know that this was spent near five thousand years. These loans are thoroughly you know that selected um, from over one point eight million, you know, uh, words in the Palace Museum collections. Among them, there's 166 words, nearly 20% are grade one objects, you know, that which are classified as uh, national churches. And how were these pieces chosen? Actually, you know, that this is a joint effort, and then, you know, the Hong Kong Palace Museum and also the um, Beijing Palace Museum team, we work together and select the objects, and then with a view to telling the story uh, behind this national treasure from the perspective of cultural history, um, for which the window in the rich history and culture of Forbidden City is open and new nation on its transformation from a palace into a modern Museum. Actually, I think the both team, you know, that um, I think uh, nearly two years, I think that to finalize the objects, you know, the storyline, you know, that, and also the design of the galleries. If you had to choose your favorite piece on display, which would it be? Oh, it's it's difficult. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult, you know, that because all these nine hundred objects, you know, are national um, treasure. Uh, maybe I will uh, highlight one very very important. Uh, exhibition on one gallery in our gallery uh, A is about the uh, Chinese painting and calligraphy um, uh, from the Palace Museum. And then we will display uh, 35 very red and printing and calligraphies. And I think that we will offer visitors once in a lifetime opportunity to appreciate, you know, that this 30 uh, church of Chinese painting from the museum collection. And many of, of them, you know, that um, we will display outside, you know, the Palace Museum for the first time. And that we will arrange this uh, 30 printing and calligraphy in with three rotations. So that every rotation is only one month. So I think they are all masterpieces, I think, in um, Chinese art canon. It must be difficult to pack and transport such masterpieces. Was there also any delays in transportation of the relics because of the pandemic? Yes, yes, it's some delay um, because, you know, that's, uh, they are all national treasure. I think that uh, have to be handled with utmost care. And um, I think in, in particular, I think that during these three months, I think the COVID situation in Beijing, there were some delay about the packing material. Um, but uh, fortunately, I think we managed, I think, to solve our problem. And all these 900 objects uh, were carefully packed and placed in uh, 144 cranes for shipping to Hong Kong um, in five batches. It was, it was flown into Hong Kong. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then uh, three batches has been safely arrived. And then um, our museum and also the Palace Museum conservators, collection managers and uh, professional art handling company, you know, that they have been working very hard to ensure the safety of the art treasure while on packing and transportation from Beijing to Hong Kong. And uh, uh, on their arrival in the airport, 
the cleans and also the, with the artifacts uh, were taken to the Hong Kong Palace Museum. Um, it's called the, by a team of armed police. So you see, though, there's high security arrangement to ensure the safety of these national treasures. And I remember, uh, Dr. Ng, you said uh, before that the uh, Palace Museum will, will make uh, promoting Chinese culture and history education a priority. Um, how will you be working towards that? Well, I think it's very important that um, education and also the promotion of uh, the understanding of an appreciation of Chinese art and culture is a key aspect of the Hong Kong Palace Museum mission and missions. And then we aspire to become an innovative leader in museum education. And I think that to achieve this, um, I think the mission that I think that we have two major uh, aspects of work. One, uh, we uh, we will set up a learning center. We call it a, a palace uh, a palace academy. Then you know that on the lower ground floor of our museum, and then uh, there are a lot of a different type of facility, including a 400 seat auditorium and also activity room. And then there will be you know a wide a vibrant space for innovative learning, you know, and experimentations. And also that, you know, visitors there can have a different uh, uh, type of education activities uh, from film screaming, uh, public lecture, and also we, 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 we will have some program there to display students' work and also uh, art classes, workshop, digital art making. Um, so it's, it's you know, quite a vibrant, you know, the learning area. So this is, I think, our on-site um, provision. And in the meantime, we have a program, I think, that to um, to reach out to school and community, especially for the local school. And then, you know, that there will be uh, a different type of um, program and offer students and teachers accessible and relevant learning resources. That's Dr. Lewis Ng, Museum Director of the Hong Kong Palace Museum. And speaking of national treasures, we unfortunately did lose one earlier this year with the death of Ocean Hogs An An, the world's oldest male giant panda under captivity. Suzanne Gendrin, the former director of Ocean Park Conservation Foundation Hong Kong, earlier told me and Danny Gitchings about An An's amazing life. He's had a marvelous life that has influenced and inspired millions of our visitors uh, for conservation and awareness of panda conservation. And it was a long time ago, but do you, do you still remember the moment you first uh, met An An? Oh my gosh, yes. I remember it very vividly. We went up to Wulong. It was my first month in Hong Kong and my first month with Ocean Park. And we went up to, to Wulong uh, to to meet An An and Jia Jia before, before they even came back to and that would be in November 1998, before they uh, came to Hong Kong in uh, April of uh, 1999, while we were finishing up the exhibit and, and officially they could come in. And I remember he uh, he was a very, uh, how should I put him, I don't want to give him human emotions, but if, if I were to describe it as a human, I would say he was aloof. He was not, uh, didn't interact with people very much, and so uh, he was, he was taken good, well, he was well taken care of, but he didn't interact with people very much, um, and he was a beautiful animal. He had been to a number of other places, Singapore, he was an ambassador animal, 
Uh, and then when we, uh, he came to us, working with him, um, we were able to use positive reinforcement to teach him various behaviors to help us take better care of him, and which is why he's had such a good long life, too, is that he learned to hold out his paw. And this was the first time giant pandas ever were taught any of these medical behaviors. So being able to check on his health and make sure he was always healthy, we could have him hand out his, his paw and take a blood to make sure he was healthy. We could take blood pressure. We learned so we could take and look at his teeth. We could check his body fat. We could do 99% of everything we needed on his annual physicals just through these behaviors. And he always was then rewarded after doing any of these with um, affection or uh, whatever his favorite uh, food was at the time. I remember Lula specifically likes lavender towels. I don't think he was as keen on lavender towels. but So he, he was able, through being with Ocean Park, to show the rest of the world that pandas are bright animals that could learn and be um, partners in their health exams like that. So that was one of the first lessons he taught us. And the veterinarians learned so much about animal health that all veterinarians treating animals that come in from the wild have more information. Not that Ocean Park was the only one that did that, but working together with other zoos and aquariums that had uh, pandas under human care and the Wulong Nature Reserve where the pandas were under human care. You know, we built up a wide, large body of knowledge on um, care of animals and for geriatric pandas. Ocean Park led the way on, on geriatric panda medicine. The second thing that was so, that has been so marvelous, as I mentioned earlier, is that millions of people have come through the, the giant panda habitat where Anon lives and yeah. seen him. And um, just the, the emotional connections by looking at him in the eye and watching his behaviors and appreciating what an amazing animal on on and other giant pandas are they're much more aware of nature that connection to nature and are more likely to have pro-environmental behaviors of being able to do things that help other animals in the wild yeah i was going to ask about that so, so what, what is it what is it that captivates us about pandas so much what, what, what is it just that they they're so incredibly cute well i think one of the reasons we all like pandas is they, they are always looking vulnerable because they're eye-patched, they have big eyes, and that appeals to us, just like babies appeal to us. And they have such an amazing repertoire of behaviors that they, you know, act out during their, their daily, you know, looking for food and playing, that they just appeal to us. And... and that is an absolutely wonderful thing for children and adults to have that connection to nature. As I, as I learn more on the importance of connections to nature and how that helps inspire and inculcate our stewardship for nature, it's really important that our children today who are on technology so much have an opportunity to have those personal connections with animals to have those develop those 
uh, strong connections with nature, and so that they too will take up the baton to be stewards of nature when they grow up. So I think pandas are just an amazing animal. You know, I would love to talk to you about uh, the fact that since when I first started at Ocean Park in 1998, there were 23 reserves. There are now 67, more than 67 reserves. And as the, and there were about 1,000, maybe 1,100 pandas under in the wild and only a few under human care. And now there's well over 1,864 in the 2015 census in the wild. So that they've actually gone from critically endangered on the um, International Union of Conservation for Nature's red list down to vulnerable. They're still vulnerable for habitat loss and fragmentation, but you know they're not exploited for their fur. They're not hunted. They don't have any major uh, predators. So really, it's just being able to get enough food and be able to get from one habitat to the other so that they can mate since they're normally loners. And then during the mating season, they need to to be able to travel distances up to 25 miles to, to find a mate. And that was Suzanne Gendron, the former director of Ocean Park Conservation Foundation Hong Kong, speaking earlier to me and Danny Gitchings. It's now coming up to the 9 o'clock news, which means we have to take a short break very soon. When we return in around three minutes' time, we will revisit our discussions on nuclear fusion and the James Webb Telescope. But before we get to that, here's the weather forecast. Fine and dry with a top temperature of around 19 degrees. Winds moderate northerlies, fresh offshore to start with. And the outlook staying fine and dry with temperatures rising over the New Year's holidays. Right now it's 13 degrees, relative humidity 69%. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back to the Best of Fact Chat with me, Janice Wong. In the next 25 minutes or so, we will look at some of the discoveries and breakthroughs made over the past year. Back in September, a million-year-old human skull fossil was dug up in Hebei province. It's believed to be the most complete fossil of its kind found in mainland Eurasia. Ryan Wong and I spoke to Professor Lam Wing Cheng from the Chinese University's Department of Anthropology and Dr. Michael Rivera, lecturer at the University of Hong Kong's Department of History. I first asked Professor Lam how rare this finding is. Great question. So uh, this uh, location, we call it Xue uh, Tangliangzi in uh, Hubei, has been excavated about like 30 years ago. And the previous excavation already uh, yielded two sets of early harmony skulls, and they are already quite complete. And according to a previous study, the date of the skulls were about one million years ago. Um, and this is not the earliest discovery uh, in terms of the age in China, but the skull is very complete in terms of the face, in terms of the cranial bowl, um, in terms of the base of the skull. So uh, it is not the earliest, but uh, definitely it is the most complete one. And um, according to the news uh, uh, information, the uh, latest discovery is even more complete than the previous excavated sample. So um, definitely a, a big discovery. All right. And Dr. Rivera, um, so what will this million-year-old skull hopefully be able to tell us? 
Um, great question also. Um, so Homo sapiens in China do not come into the picture yet until later, around 100,000 years ago. So this skull being 10 times older means it's likely another species. There was one ancestor species called Homo erectus that we find in Western Asia and in Africa as well. And it's named because we believe they stood with an upright posture and had body and leg proportions that were um, efficient for walking on two legs. So um, as Professor Lam said, fossils for Homo erectus were found in China before. The Zhou Kodian Cave in northern China, for example, in 1921 was a revelation at the time because paleoanthropologists only had that as evidence for a human ancestral presence in East Asia. Um, Professor Lam also mentioned that there were other finds in Yunnan and in Shanxi province. These also date to quite ancient times, but the find announced this week is a really exciting one because we're finding another piece to fit in the human evolutionary puzzle. Would the skull be able to, uh, Dr. Rivera, uh, offer us any information about the structure of the societies and communities, or is it more an individual-based uh, evidence and also information that we can collect from it? I think that there are some biological questions and some behavioral questions we can answer. So in terms of biology, it seems that we have many parts of the skull available for study. So like the frontal bone, which is your forehead and your eyebrow ridge, the eye sockets, um, and also some bones that make up the left side of the head. So if you look at the upper part of the skull, and you study that in comparison to the lower half of the skull, we can find out more about how our bones have changed in shape to accommodate bigger brains. Because if you think about it, a big brain is very heavy, which is why monkey and, and other ape skulls sort of stretch backwards. But we in the hominin lineage reconfigured that so that our brain's weight will sit centered and on top of the neck, and that will shift your face downwards and backwards. Um, your upper skull goes forward and upwards. At least that's what we observe in African and Western Asian Homo species. So it'll be very interesting to see what's happening here in the Eastern Asian context. In terms of behavior, um, if, they're un uh, if they're able to uncover some teeth and more about the jaw morphology, we can learn about diet. The archaeologists working in Hubei mentioned that they uncovered the bones of many large animals like elephants and horses and big uh, carnivorous cat species and also the stone tools associated with hunting. So we could potentially see if that type of diet affected the condition of their teeth and bones, but also understand a bit about um, the way that they're interacting with the environment. Right. And Professor Lam, have there been any other fossil findings on the mainland that's been uh, this significant before? In terms of the age, in terms of the completeness of the skull, I think this one definitely um, is the most important one. And another significant issue is that these archaic uh, hominy skull um, represent changes moving towards more advanced hominids. Um, so definitely, according to the physical anthropological study, uh, this skull belongs to Homo erectus, but um, previous study already showed that uh, on number two skull that was excavated about like 30 years ago, uh, number two skull already um, present uh, some modern uh, features that uh, theoretically appeared on uh, later period homilies. So, um, I mean, in terms of the age and in terms of the significance for understanding the evolution of modern human beings uh, in East Asia, this one definitely is probably the most important one. Now, Dr. Rivera, just to add curiosity, do you foresee these increasing frequency of discoveries that we're, we're having here as something that would occur? So are we going to see more frequent discoveries and breakthroughs 
to a similar nature and of a similar kind uh, as a result of technological and technique advances, or do you see this as merely uh, in an incidental occurrence, so to speak? <laughs> it's always an accident. It's always random. But um, I do think that the rate of, of discovery is improving, um, exactly as you say, because we have um, more innovative uh, scanning technologies and um, drone uh, technology that we use to actually understand what's under the ground before even digging under it so that we save a lot of resources and time and effort um, before we, we sort of commit to a big excavation project. And so I do foresee that there will be more exciting discoveries. I also think that it's important to um, recognize that in Asia, the environment is very different from other places, maybe perhaps like North America or in Europe, um, because we have a very particular um, set of environments. And um, across China and across East Asia and Southeast Asia, uh, we have different conditions. Different environmental conditions can mean that preservation can vary. Um, any condition that's too wet, too dry, too hot, too cold, the soil being too acidic can all cause um, damage or disintegration, and so um, that is also something to keep in mind. But, you know, a vast majority of the world, 99.9% .9 of it, we haven't dug yet. And so I, I do foresee that there probably are a lot more Holland and discoveries to come. Now, on the note of public uh, outreach, actually, uh, Professor Lam, just want to bring you in here. What, what do you think are important steps that the Hong Kong government should undertake to promote public outreach and in, encourage people to dig deeper into uh, the historical findings here? Well, so first of all, um, public archaeology uh, is uh, quite essential for um, in the educational component because it can help us understand the past and also can help us uh, make a better decision in terms of the balancing of the development and cultural heritage conservation. So uh, the better understanding of the past and the more understanding of the significance of the archaeological discoveries will definitely benefit to developing a better plan in the future. And that was Professor Lang Wing Cheng from the Chinese University's Department of Anthropology and Dr. Michael Rivera, lecturer at the University of Hong Kong's Department of History. Now, let's turn to our next topic. For the past six decades or so, scientists have attempted to tackle one of the toughest physics challenges ever conceived. That is harnessing nuclear fusion to generate abundant clean energy. And earlier this month, American scientists announced a milestone in this effort. For the first time, a fusion reactor produced excess energy from nuclear fusion, though on a very small scale. Jenny Lam and I spoke to Professor Matthew Hall, a senior fellow at Australian National University. Dr. William Yu, the chief executive officer of World Green Organization. And environmentalist Peggy Liu, the chairperson of the NGO Joint U.S.-China Collaboration on Clean Energy. I began by asking Professor Hall to explain the significance of the latest experiment. I would describe it perhaps better as a, as a milestone or a scientific milestone. So it's important, as you pointed out, that uh, uh, this is the first time that it's been able to generate energy yield, uh, where the energy yield from the reaction is greater than the auxiliary heating. In this case, the heating was from the laser, uh, laser supply. So it is a scientific milestone, uh, which is, I guess, important worth and worth recognising in the long trajectory towards fusion power development. Uh, it would be worth saying that uh, 
there are different types of energy technologies in a fusion space. This is inertial confinement fusion. Uh, the majority of the research program in the world is, is in toroidal magnetic confinement. Uh, they are very different technologies. Um, and this is an important outcome. Uh, it's also worth noting, however, that this facility is primarily funded to continue the U.S. weapons program under a comprehensive test ban treaty. So, look, it's an important outcome, but it's shaped by the technology uh, that's being utilised. Let's go to Ms Liu. Good morning, Ms Liu. Hi, good morning. Good morning. So we're looking at this uh, um, nuclear fusion technology. It has the potential to achieve uh, a limitless supply of clean carbon-free energy. And uh, when we look at the climate change situation and the energy crisis caused by the uh, Russia-Ukraine war, uh, how desperate uh, are we for a limitless uh, supply of clean carbon-free energy, would you say? Well, I think regardless of wars, the world, the Earth, is very desperate for both the holy grail in energy production as well as the holy grail in energy storage. We really need both in order for us to be able to solve the climate change challenges that we're faced with. So it was an amazing announcement, a great milestone that should be celebrated. And I, uh, you know, applaud them. I actually had the pleasure of getting a private tour at Lawrence Livermore National Lab very early on by Dr. Julio Friedman when he was the chief energy technologist. So at that time, what he told me was the problem is how do you actually keep this reaction going for longer than, you know, a nanosecond? So again, the milestone, as Professor Hull said, is one that should be celebrated, but it is a very small one in a long journey to making a commercially viable fusion power plant. Right now, what we've done is essentially striked a match, light, light, lighted a match compared to a combustion engine, as Hulu likes to say. So that's where we're at with energy production and the holy grail of nuclear fusion. Right, so just, just to put it into perspective for our listeners, um, it is actually what they did was they input two megajoules of energy and then they got out 3.15 megajoules. Now, um, from what I've read, uh, that's actually, the energy output is actually only enough to, bo to boil about 15 to 20 kettles. Um, so what are I the challenges? Yeah, it's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, at least 20 to 100 times more return in order to get commercial. So, so what are the challenges that the scientists have to face now in order that one day we can actually feed enough into the energy grid? And not, not, just, not just feed it into the energy grid, but to feed it so that it, the grid doesn't crash. It's really the energy storage that is almost even more important than the energy production. Because what's going to happen for climate change solutions is that we're going to have this checkerboard of solutions. We're going to have solar, we're going to have hydro, we're going to have wave technology, we're going to have nuclear fusion, nuclear fission, and we're just going to have a lot of different energy sources. But the problem is all of that is sort of mixed in during the day and night. And how, does, how do we actually make that consistently available to you when you boil your tea in Hong Kong? And so the key is to have really cheap, durable, long-lasting, and environmentally friendly energy storage. And the good news, actually, less uh, press attention has been focused on this, but we've actually reached the holy grail of battery storage, of energy storage, and that is graphene, pure play, solid-state energy storage that is manufactured 
at a commercial scale. That's the key, is a commercial scale getting out of the lab and into your living room. So I think for energy storage, we're, we're there. It's just a matter of getting the market to react and design it into cars, design the graphene energy into grids, um, design it into uh, your, for example, elevators for emergency recovery. And then we can plug and play any energy source like nuclear fusion maybe 20 years from now. Right. And uh, Professor Hall, this is going to sound a bit off topic, but uh, are you a Spider-Man fan? <laughs> I'm just asking because uh, with this uh, fusion technology we're talking about, um, it was uh, famously portrayed in the Spider-Man 2 movie around uh, eight years ago. But if you remember, the fusion reactor created by Dr. Octopus in the movie was unstable and caused a lot of damage. I'm, what I'm getting at here is uh, exactly how safe or how stable is nuclear fusion technology? I mean, is it possible for a Dr. Octopus to happen? Films are designed to make money um, and designed to appeal to a, a vivid imagination. So reality is something quite different. So the challenge in fusion uh, always in the laboratory is getting the experiment to occur at all because you have to bring the charged particles very close together to allow the strong nuclear force to take over and combine them. So that's why fusion has been, uh, today not even demonstrated break even with an atomic because it's very difficult to do. You have to bring the temperature up to 100 million degrees. The most likely outcome of even a plasma becoming unstable is that the experiment shuts down. That's that's all. That's almost. In fact, that is exactly what happens in every single colloidal confinement experiment to date. Is that if the plasma becomes unstable, the machine that the plasma terminates, and it terminates just by extinguishing. There's no. The worst that could happen is perhaps you you uh, damage the wall of the machine. But even in, I mean, there have been lots of environmental impact safety studies looking at what would be the worst impact. Of, uh, of a plane, a 747, crashing into the entire facility. And at the very worst, you would end up with um, some tritium release that would be, at, at worst, the level of background radiation at the perimeter would be at background levels. So the most likely scenario um, is that... I don't think you can end up with a, a Dr Octopus uh, <laughs> scenario. The, the most likely scenario is that you end up with an expensive piece of infrastructure not operating properly. Uh, but there's no danger to public safety. There's no danger, but particularly for torn magnetic confinement, there is no weaponization potential either. Right. So let's go back uh, to uh, Dr. Yu briefly. How, how does, uh, in your view, how does nuclear fusion compare with uh, um, other renewable energy we, we have right now? I think the cost is a matter of consideration. As uh, we still, we can see, you know, how we can achieve uh, economies of scale in order to lower uh, the production cost from the new uh, nuclear fusion. I, I think, uh, again, it takes a long road. You know, uh, after spending 70 years of uh, research, now we, now we uh, reach this point, but still uh, far, far away from turning to a, a commercial power plant. Uh, for, for renewable, I, I think it's the way to go, especially during the current energy crisis, um, many countries, especially European countries, start to speed up, you know, the conversion to renewable energy. But you will see the percentage is still not very high. In some European countries, the highest is around 30% of renewable energy in the entire energy mix, but on average, it's around 10%. 
that was Dr. William Yu, the Chief Executive Officer of World Green Organization, Professor Matthew Hall, Senior Fellow at Australian National University, and environmentalist Peggy Liu, the Chairperson of the NGO Joint US-China Collaboration on Clean Energy. Finally on the program, let's take a look at the James Webb Space Telescope the most powerful to be placed in orbit. Revealed in July, the clearest image to date of the early universe, going back 13 billion years. Professor Quinton Parker from the University of Hong Kong's Laboratory for Space Research spoke earlier to me and Paul Zimmerman. I began by asking Professor Parker if the images were worth waiting for. <laughs> That's a loaded question. Well, um, it is a 10 billion US dollar facility. Uh, and HST, for comparison, was two billion when they first built it, but over its 30-year lifetime, it's cost about uh, 12 or so billion all told. So, um, the J- James Webb Space Telescope um, has just produced its uh, first public images, and they are absolutely astonishing. Very, very high-quality images of planetary nebulae, the kind of objects I study, an incredible cluster of galaxies full of microlens events, a spectrum of uh, of an extrasolar planet that shows water vapor in the atmosphere, the best ever extrasolar... I mean, just think about that for a moment. You know, we now have the technology to look at spectroscopy in the atmosphere of a planet around another star. What Not is our that? own star, another star. Mr. Parker, what is tetroscopy? Yes. Wait, can you explain that? I mean, you're using terminology. Oh, tetroscopy, <laughs> sorry. That's when you, yes, sorry. Good point. It's when you split light into its constituent colors like a prism does, like, like um, you know, um, uh, Isaac Newton did centuries ago when he first showed that white light from the sun can be split up into colors of the rainbow. That's mm. what you do with spectroscopy. You split light up so you can see what's in there. And so we use spectroscopy and astronomy to understand what objects are made of, how fast they're traveling, etc., etc. So how, how is this useful other than this planet and, and really exciting images? I mean, can we stop uh, you um, know, uh, uh, meteorites <laughs> hitting Earth or can we discover life on other planets? I mean, what can we do with these? We can what discover can we life on other planets potentially mm-hmm. uh, with this because, as I said, if once you see water vapor in the atmosphere of, uh, of planets around other stars, you can perhaps see methane, you perhaps might be able to see signatures of chlorophyll, uh, you know, from plants, etc. So we're now kind of getting into that territory as far as spectroscopy of planetary atmospheres are concerned. But the other thing is we're looking at the detail in the near-infrared and mid-infrared of of sources um, from the nearest to the furthest in the universe. I mean, the image of uh, the um, very cluster of galaxies, which is full. It's a rich cluster of galaxies. Behind it, there's lots of other galaxies. These have been lensed by the gravity of the cluster acting like a, a lens for focus and bend light. You know, gravity bends light. Einstein showed that. And so um, it's just astonishing. You know, I mean, I don't think uh, the readers can and your listeners can look at these images and say, look, they're very beautiful. They are, but it's what the images tell you and what the spectra tell you scientifically where the value is. Now, no nation state like America or all its partners are going to spend uh, $10 billion on pretty images for the public. Now, of course, it's very important for the public to um, love those images and appreciate them and support the mission, but it's the science that you get from these images, from scientists like me and others around the world that study these images and study the spectra to understand how the universe works. Hmm. Now, we do that because we can and because it's important for humanity to understand, is there life out there? Are we alone in the universe? How is the universe made? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is why these sums are spent. 
Can I ask you, just, I know that travel take, light takes time to travel. Uh, so that, that image that yes. we're looking at, I mean, how old is that image? Has that light been traveling for a year and, until it hit the, between the time well, of photograph? we're looking at, yeah, exactly. So light tra travels at a finite speed, but it's extremely fast, 186,000 miles per second. You know, so light travel time to our sun is about, um, you know, uh, I think it's um, eight and a half minutes. Um, um, to get, for if the sun suddenly disappeared and the light went out, it would take us a few minutes to notice, although gravity would uh, um, also travels at the speed of light. Uh, and so um, objects which are distant in the universe, it's like a time machine, like looking back into the past. So when we're looking at this very deep image of this rich cluster of galaxies and all these galaxies lens behind it, we're looking back to the very early universe. We're talking about 13 billion years ago nearly at the birth of the universe. We're almost getting back to that kind of timeline now. So it's like a, a really powerful time machine. So the further things are away from us, the further it, longer it takes light to travel to get to us, and therefore we're looking at light that started traveling to us hundreds, thousands, millions or billions of years ago, depending on what we're looking at. So, Professor Parker, um, are those images what you had expected or, or do they exceed your expectation? Um, well, there's been simulations, because <laughs> we like to simulate things in, in astronomy, uh, what things would look like. And in fact, you know, we know what the performance of the telescope should be in terms of its resolution and what a sensitivity of the detectors and filters and all these things are. So we can kind of guess. But just because you know what it might look like, you don't know what it actually looks like because you haven't seen it. You've only seen simulated data. So when you're looking at things for the first time, like this wonderful image of NGC 3132, which is a, a planetary nebula known as the Southern Ring Nebula, they've discovered this candidate central star in the, in the mid-infrared. Um, and it's, um, you know, it's shrouded in dust, which is not what was expected. And so this is a, you know, so the star you see in the, in the near-infrared image is not the central star, the bright one. It's actually a companion star, which is in a binary system with the other star. And so this is very exciting. And also you see structure of the way the material was ejected uh, from this planetary nebulae uh, thousands of years ago. I mean, the planetary nebulae is basically what will happen to our sun in a few billion years. It'll eject its outer envelope and then the sun will uh, contract and uh, become a white dwarf eventually, a tiny mass compared to what it is now and, uh, you know, about the size of the Earth. But it will ionize as it heats up all that ejected material. And that's what you see with the PN. But you also see these longer wavelengths, all the dust that's been ejected and created during the lifetime of these fascinating objects. And that's the exciting thing for me, because that's what the kind of things I study. And I'm very excited to see that image myself. <laughs> and out of the images actually captured by the telescope, which one would you say was the most important? Uh, well, I think, uh, I think there's two very, very important images. One of Stefan's quintet is uh, interesting for understanding how galaxies interact. Uh, the planetary nebula is interesting for understanding how stars evolve and die. Uh, the atmospheric um, in, in, uh, spectrum of a, of a WASP exoplanet is very exciting because it's the very first clear detection of water vapor uh, in an extrasolar planet, which is extremely interesting. But it's the deep image, which is why it was the first image, the deep image of a rich cluster of galaxies. And in that field, it goes very deep and seeing all those tiny faint blobs and they're nearly all galaxies in the distant universe. There's only a few galactic stars in that image, and they're the ones that have those kind of like star things on it. That's just diffraction spikes around the secondary mirror. But the actual fuzzy images and the images that have structure and morphology and shape, they're galaxies. And you, if you look at that image, you say, that's funny, a lot of those galaxies seem to be curved. They seem to be like arcs, and they're red and they're arcs. 
they're gravitationally lensed background galaxies behind that great big bright galaxy in the middle of the image. But the other thing I found was very exciting is that when you look at that galaxy in the middle of the image, there's faint isophotes, faint material like streams of gas, um, which is actually just streams of stars going out from both sides of that galaxy over much of the field. Mm. So that wasn't expected, I didn't think. So a really, really exciting image. And that was Professor Quentin Parker from the University of Hong Kong's Laboratory for Space Research. You've been listening to the Best of Back Chat. Thanks again for tuning in. Back Chat will be back on Tuesday with Danny Gitchings and Jenny Lam. Now, here's the weather. Fine and dry with a top temperature of around 19 degrees. Winds moderate northerlies, fresh offshore to start with. And the outlook staying fine and dry with temperatures rising over the New Year holidays. At the moment, the temperature reading at the observatory is 14 degrees, relative humidity 67%. I'm Dr. Siu Kao pediatric respirologist. The best protection for kids aged 6 months or above against the surging pandemic is arranging for them to get COVID-19 jabs. Catching COVID-19 is unlike having a cold or flu. A severe case like encephalitis may lead to intensive care or even death. Vaccination can reduce severe cases in pregnant women, who can then pass antibodies to the fetus. Newborns can also get the antibodies through breastfeeding from vaccinated mothers. It's now 9.30, the news with Andrew Shirovsky. Pelé, who was arguably the world's greatest ever footballer, has died in Brazil at the age of 82. His death was announced by one of his daughters, who'd been with him in hospital in Sao Paulo. Japan has further revised the rules for flights from Hong Kong, allowing them to land at three more destinations. The SAR government says it considers the restrictions unreasonable and has asked Tokyo to rescind all of them. And a concern group says it's worried about potential COVID outbreaks at schools when full-day teaching resumes in February. Mervyn Zhang from the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Group said the government's decision to no longer designate and quarantine close contacts of infected people could lead to the virus spreading. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock.